This podcast contains explicit material. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to The Joy of Text, a monthly podcast about Judaism and sexuality. Coming up, a discussion about sex education with teens and young adults. Comprehensive sex education and values-based sex education are not mutually exclusive, right? It's not like I could only have one or the other. I could only give my kid the tools and the information and, you know, make it clear that I'm here and open to talk about whatever's out there, or I give them any sense of values about sex, right? Like, we can do both. Then we'll hear from Instagrammer Holy Shid about matchmaking via Instagram. My belief is that God makes matches, and my belief is that we need to get out of our own way so that God could send us the match and that we can accept the match. And of course, the final word. Stay tuned for the joy of text right after this quick word from our sponsor. At Maze Health, we know that if you're having sexual problems, it can have a significant impact on your life and on your relationship. We also know that these problems are not all in your head, and it's important for you to know that pain, low libido, erection, or orgasm problems can all be successfully resolved. Maze is the only treatment center of its kind in the area, addressing both the physical and emotional sources of sexual difficulties. If you're a man or a woman experiencing sexual problems, please don't go another day feeling like there is no solution. Visit us at www.mazehealth.com. Welcome back to The Joy of Text. I'm Sarah Rosner-Lawrence, and I'm here, as usual, with Dr. Batsheva Marcus, Clinical Director of Maze Women's Health, and Rabbi Dov Linzer, Rosh Yeshiva and President of Yeshiva Chovei Torah. Hi, Sarah. It's good to be back again. Hey. Hey, guys. Um, okay, so our topic for this episode is sex education part two. So in our last full episode, I hope you all tuned in, we talked about sex education with younger kids, so like before bar or bat mitzvah age. This time, we're going to be talking about sex education with teens and young adults, which I feel like is like a whole different ball game in some ways. And I want to start by saying all is not lost. If you are listening to this and you heard our first episode where I went on and on and on about how you should start when the kids are young and you're thinking, oh my goodness, I haven't said anything to my kid and my kid is 12 (laughs) or 25, it's okay. It's never too late. Seriously and truly, I mean it. I'm not just saying that. It is never too late. It is no matter what age you start, you got it. You got to go for it. Absolutely. Yeah. So something that we started to talk about a little bit last episode, and we sort of punted it off maybe to this episode is, I feel like this topic with older kids feels a lot more difficult for parents and for educators in some ways, because there's not only this element of like conveying information and like telling them the accurate like names of their body parts and all of that. But there's also this like, either implicit or explicit value judgment about sex, right? It's like now I'm talking to a teenage kid who could conceivably have sex now, right? And like, how am I going to handle that conflict and values communicating to the kid that maybe I want them to wait until they're married or, you know, it's really important to only have sex in a committed relationship or whatever without having that turn into either a shameful message or a message that is just going to be like seen by the kid as like missing them. So can I just back up a little bit before that? Because I do think that's probably one of the most important issues. But I think the issue that kind of feeds into that is the issue of parents feeling like if they talk about sex to their kids, their kids are more likely to act on it. Like somehow if they don't talk about sex, the kid won't know that sex exists. But I don't want to put that idea in their head. No, really. I think that people feel like that. Especially if they haven't now, talked. Even now with the internet? No, I'm serious. Like people even today think that way? Yeah. I told parents who were like, well, my kid doesn't look at those sites. I'm, I'm with my kid all the time or a lot of the time. My kid is incredibly innocent. My kid doesn't know about any of this stuff. Why would I want to put this into my kid's head? Right? That, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I'm going to tell you that the only child who hasn't either stumbled upon some kind of sexual innuendos pictures, references on the television, on their phones, are the kids who live on Mars. I mean, it just is not, (laughs) it's not a reality. And if you Mm -hmm. think that, then that's, 
that's a concern because you need to like address the reality that as much as you try to protect them, the rest of the world is just inundated with this stuff. And so their friends, their frummy friends on the playground, maybe mimicking oral sex on a banana, as one very from mother told me about her 10 year old girl. They don't even know what they're doing, right? They're just picking up pieces of information, but it would be useful if they knew what they were doing because then you could actually talk to them about it. So I just need to also say that every piece on this, there is so much data and every single study shows that the more you talk about sex, the more the kid knows and understands, the less problems arise. The later they act out sexually in any way, shape, or form, the more likely they are to use protection when they have sex, the more likely they are to have consensual sex when they're ready to have sex or consensual any kind of activity, um, the happier and healthier sex life those kids have. So don't think that by avoiding the subject, you're protecting them. So I just, I really, really, really need to emphasize that. But I then, I, then I'm going to return to Sarah's point, which is one I made at the earlier episode, which is this is your opportunity to express your values. And so you need to really think those through and try to be as honest as you can with yourself about those values. I have a question, which is going back to your point about the need to talk about it. So there's not talking about it, and then there's abstinence only. Um, and, um, so sure I'll talk about it, but I'm going to tell my kid that you absolutely can't masturbate or certainly can't have sex or sexual activity until you're married, which is very consistent with a, you know, an Orthodox uh, perspective. If that's what I believe, why should I teach them about condom and safe sex? That's completely irrelevant. And that will suggest to them that the, that those are options. So that's different than not talking about it. Why talk about that particular thing? Totally. So I feel like sort of echoing Batsheva's point earlier, like a lot of the research Batsheva was mentioning is specifically about this question, right? It's specifically about in, let's say, like like a school setting, you know, do do school sex education programs that, that just focus on this abstinence-only approach, do they work better to prevent kids from having sex outside of marriage? Or do comprehensive sex education programs work better? And like just across the board, all of the research points to the fact that that actually abstinence-only sex education models do the worst possible job at protecting kids and of preventing kids from having sex. It's like, ironically, by, by giving them the message that the only option is to wait until marriage, it's almost like the reaction is like, okay, well, I'm just going to throw this whole thing in the garbage because that's not even realistic. I know. I think I, I'm going to call the chocolate cake model. If you raise your kid saying, you may not eat that piece of chocolate cake. You may not eat. There's a chocolate cake always on top of the fridge. You may not touch that cake. 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 That kid is going to become obsessed with that cake, <laughs> right? As opposed to if the kid has a slice of cake every now and then. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, So I'm not saying you should tell your kids to have sex. I'm really not because I think... I think you need to really be honest about your values, but I think you can give your kids ranges and options. You can say something like, I feel like sex should only happen in a committed relationship, or I feel very strongly that intercourse should only happen after kiddushin, like after you're married. Like, I feel that's important. But I do understand and know that a lot of kids do have other kinds of sexual activities or intercourse before they're married. That does not my values. I hope that's not what you do. But I want you to know, I understand that that is a reality. And what that does is that conveys to your child the message you want to give them. It also conveys to them that you are reasonable and will be able to talk to them if they come home and they're pregnant, right? And mm -hmm. you don't want to have a mm -hmm. situation where your child can't come talk to you because as far as they're concerned, it's, it's not a possibility. Like there's no way you're going to have sex. You want to, I don't know about other people listening, but I know that I wanted my kids the same way that I would, I said to them, if you're ever at a party and there's too much drinking or you've drunk too much, I don't think you should drink like that. And I don't think you should be at a party where people are drinking like that. But if you're there, I want you to know that I will come pick you up and I will not yell at you. Do you know what I mean? Like that becomes sort of a message that I think that we give our kids. But to do that, you have to be very clear yourself. And I think parents are very torn. Like they're extremely torn because a lot of parents are like, oh, I don't want my kid to have, you know, any kind of sexual activity, even though I was really sexually active, you know, in college. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. I feel like the more you are honest with your kids, the more you understand, you let them know that you have preferences, you have values, this is what they are. 
you're willing to have a conversation with them, you're willing to be challenged, you're willing to debate, but in the end, they're going to be making their own decisions because that's the truth. In the end, they really are going to be making their own decisions. Right. Also, I think it's, you know, just like along those same lines, I think comprehensive sex education and values-based sex education are not mutually exclusive, right? It's not like I could only have one or the other. I could only give my kid the tools and the information and, you know, make it clear that I'm here and open to talk about whatever's out there, or I give them any sense of values about sex, right? Like we can do both as Bacheva modeled, like make it clear to them, like, these are my values. This is what I believe is right. And I also want you to be aware of this information that's out there that, you know, I maybe hope isn't going to be relevant for you. But if it ever is, at least you should know about condoms, right? At least you should, like, if you're going to have sex, at least be aware of the you know risks and the possible protections. Mm-hmm. I want to reference the um, episode we did last year in the fifth year season, um, the episode we did with Rifka Press Schwartz. And um, I don't think anybody could do a better job articulating that complicated line that both schools and parents have to walk between giving accurate information, but also being clear about their values. And I highly recommend if this is something you're thinking about that you go back and listen to that episode. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I just want to add that, you know, for people who might be listening to this and either their values or their, you know, approach to halacha is such that they want to be a little bit stronger, not just say like, this is, you know, my value, this is what I prefer, but they actually want to sort of say like, I, you know, in a very strong way, halacha tells us we cannot have sex outside of marriage. I really do not want you to be having sex outside. You know, you've been putting it very softly. Um, And there are some people that don't feel that softly about it. Um, But I think your point is you can say that you can actually be very clear, like, you know, Like you could tell your kid, I don't want you to intermarry. That would be, in my mind, the worst thing in the world. But if you did intermarry, I'll still love you, you know. But you could be very strong about your lines and still talk about, you know, the. But what happens if if you don't keep to those lines? How do you? I don't know how you how you would react to that. No, no, I I think that that's fine. I have to say, you now you're just hitting a parenting strategy and approach, which is I feel like kids respond much better in general when they don't feel like the parents are coming down super harshly on things. Um, and that the more the parents sort of come down, the more the kids shut down. So that's why I wouldn't recommend that from a parenting perspective. But, you know, certainly expressing how strongly you feel, I don't think that's bad. You know where you see this a lot, and I think it's relevant here too, it's with how teenage girls dress. I see this a lot, like with the struggle with parents, specifically with teenage girls, I don't see it with the boys. But, you know, when they hit puberty and the parents get freaked out about how sort of sexual the girl looks, all of a sudden she she's like, it almost looks like she's flaunting it. And she and I see this across the spectrum, the Haredi world, the girls just want to wear things like an inch shorter or like a quarter of an inch lower on the neck. And in the modern Orthodox world, the girls want to wear shorts and the parents aren't happy. Like I watch it. The harder the parents come slamming down on it, the more the kid wants to do it. So, mm-hmm. um, so it's, it's, and it's complicated. Believe me, I feel for parents. I do not think this is an easy issue, but I do think again, the values, the parents saying, listen, I do not feel like it is appropriate for you to be dressed like that when you go outside. If you want to wear this stuff inside the house, you can wear it inside the house. When you get to be X age, you can make your own decision about what you're wearing. But for right now, because I'm not comfortable with it, I'm asking you to dress X, Y, and Z way. And that I don't think is unreasonable. Parents have a right to have those conversations with their kids. But again, I feel like the more open you are and the more reasonable you are, the more acquiescence you're going to get from your kids. Yeah, I think that's a really important point that like a lot of the way that you approach this is obviously going to be dictated by your parenting style and like that's okay we're not coming here and dictating the exact way every parent has to parent their kids can we talk about mikvah for a minute because i feel really strongly about this like i feel like with little kids it's true but as soon as your kids sort of hit byron bat mitzvah age and i think earlier also I don't think you should keep mikvah in the closet. And maybe you have something to say about this. I feel like people feel like halakhically they can't tell their kids they're going to the mikvah. And the, I hate the idea that, you know, women and men, when they're about to get married, suddenly hear that there's, oh my God, there's this whole set of halakhas that I knew nothing about. And I feel like we can just do a lot of healthy making nida people out there 
if the mothers and the fathers made reference to the fact that the mother's going to the mikvah sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I think from the Gemara, it was clear, you know, that women would wear different clothes when they were in Nida. Now, people believe that uh, that's because as a type of a signal so that they shouldn't engage in sexual contact, but it really is just because they didn't have, you know, pads and they <laughs> they wanted to keep a different set of clothes so it wouldn't get you know, dirty their other clothes. Um, and the Gemara talks about certain practices about when a woman goes to the mikvah that we don't allow a woman to go on the eighth day and under normal circumstances because the daughter will then think that you can go on the seventh day. So it makes it very clear when the woman is a mikvah to the point that the daughter is sort of mentally, you know, noting what's happening. Um, and I think that, you know, this gets maybe into your issue of discomfort, that we have to stop and appreciate that we have somehow offloaded that to the Kala teachers. Um, and why, why is this not a part of certainly, you know, mothers and daughters and part of that conversation? Um, and I think that that does. It has to do with the fact that it creates it much more difficult to integrate into your religious life because all of a sudden this is being dumped on you a few days before your wedding or a few months before your wedding and you haven't been acclimated to it. And yeah, it just makes it something more, I don't know if it's more more shameful or more not a natural part of your life or of religious life in a certain way that it was never spoken about and you were unaware of it. So the other thing I would add to that is I think your sons as well as your daughters because they're going to be part of this package as well. And I would even like almost elevate it more like couples that are keeping Hilchot Nida, like to a certain, to a certain, in a certain way, it's, it's creating the rhythm of their life, the rhythm of their physical life, not just their sex life, right? The touching each other, that, and, and if we think that there's a value to that, then that's something we may want to, you know, have the kids be aware of. And I have told the story and I told it in a, in a really earlier episode five years ago, but I will tell it again. Um, when my second son was in 11th or 12th grade, they decided to teach Tarsh Nusbacha at SAR Academy and the teacher's teaching, you know, the halachot. And this one kid says, there's no way my mother goes to the mikvah. There's no way. And, and my son is cracking up, like literally laughing because we've had so many conversations about mikvah in the house. And my son said, I promise you, your mother uses the mikvah. And he said, there's no way that I am 18 years old and I have never seen her go to the mikvah. Like, I think my mother doesn't use the mikvah, which was so crazy. And so my son was just laughing. He said, I promise you, it's like another one of those, like, you know, playground conversations, just a little different, you know, when one kid sees, I, I promise you, go ask your mom. I promise you, your mom uses the mikvah. But the funnier piece of the conversation was that after the class was over, my son went to talk to the teacher who had been teaching. And he said, why is it that people keep it so secret? Like, why is it turned into this like national secret? And the teacher said, well, I think it's because parents don't want the kid to know that they're come, the mother comes home and that they have sex that night. Like, because a lot of couples do have sex the night they come back from the mikvah. And my son looks at him and he starts to laugh. He goes, thanks a lot. Like that had never even occurred to me. Do you know what I mean? So, um, so I, I think we put so much emphasis on such weird things. Like to my son, he knew we didn't touch each other when I was in Nita. So he knew, like, I remember the first few times when he was young and it came up, it sort of, he's like, what happens if we don't touch each other? And all of a sudden it clicked. Like there were times he saw us holding hands and there were times he didn't see us holding hands or cuddling up on the sofa and times that we didn't cuddle up on the sofa. And all of a sudden, like, it felt like it put the rhythm of our life into perspective for him in a really, really special way. And I think that's a great thing. And why are we like avoiding handing this to our children or showing this to our children? I will just add a personal pet peeve on this topic, though, is when... Go, when, go, go. We love pet yeah. peeves on this podcast. <laughs> so I think, especially for all girls, uh, religious high schools, there sometimes is a phenomenon, and this was the case in my high school, which was a very wonderful high school, but there's sometimes a phenomenon where the only sex education that's given at all is teaching girls about mikvah when they're later in high school, like let's say 11th or 12th grade. And it's like this big thing, like, oh my gosh, we're going to have the like sex talk. And then it turns out that the sex talk is only about mikvah. So I think mikvah is important and it's definitely valuable to have that conversation, especially like between parents and kids. I feel like that's like a whole other level and really powerful and not what I'm talking about. But I just wanted to throw in that pet peeve while we're on the topic. No, but I think it is important because I think parents, you can't rely on schools. You can't. The day schools do, 
Most public schools do a terrible job on sex ed. The day schools do a worse job. And this is really one where I'd say tag your it. You may like it. You may not like it. You may wish it wasn't the case. But in the end, you are the one that your kids are going to go to for information. So, or not go to, but you're the one who should be providing the information. This is going to get more complicated. If you have been talking to your child all along, it's much, much easier. But if you haven't, don't let that daunt you. You should still do all the things I said in the first episode. Practice. Come up with your values, practice out loud to yourself, to the mirror, to your partner, to your best friend. Just say it, have conversations that you can do it comfortably. But here's the deal. Your kids are going to act like they're not listening to you. I'm telling you that now. They're going to do like, la, 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 put their hands over their ears. They will roll their eyes. They will turn away. It doesn't matter. You just keep talking. And I'm not talking about big speeches. I'm talking about a few sentences. I often recommend doing it in the car when you're not facing each other or if you're making scrambled eggs and your your back is to them and you, so you don't have to make eye contact with them. I promise you they are hearing you. And again, you stop when things come up. You know, if your daughter got her period and you want to say something about that or if something was on the television and you want to comment on that or if your daughter mentions that somebody said that somebody was gay and that you want to comment on that or if, you know, you think that your son might be starting to have wet dreams and you want to say something, like you need to have conversations and they're just short. They're short. They can involve a question or two. They can involve a comment, even if they don't have a question. Again, I'm going to go back to this nutrition analogy that I give. You do not sit your child down and give them a lecture about nutrition once and hope that that is it. It is just a part of your life. It is what you cook and what you shop and what you talk about and how you talk about food. See, I'm all about food. I the chocolate cake analogy. Now I got this analogy, right? So um, that is how sex should be. And you cannot expect your children to come ask you a question. You have to you know, at Patach Lo, that should be the whole new thing on the Haggadah, right? Like that's about sex education, right? Totally. You have, to, you have to start talking to them. Then, then if they know they can talk to you, they may actually come to you when they have questions. And that is just stupendous. I want to say this. When I hear parents say, my kid came to me and asked me X or asked me Y, I just wish I could give parents hugs. Like you've done this great job if your child feels like they can come and talk to you. I just want to say, I think one of the things you're saying is when you're saying that they're listening to you is even if they're not listening to the content, they're listening that you're open to the conversation. They're listening that you're someone that they can go to. I think that's true, but I think they also do get the content. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Even if they're pretending they're not. One thing that I wanted to bring up earlier that uh, we didn't quite get to the topic of masturbation. I feel like this is one in particular where parents need to figure out how to how to give like messaging to their kids without getting tripped up by their value system. Because like m most kids are masturbating now, right? Like it's not like maybe one day in the future when you're married or when you're not, it's like now, right? So like, how how would you say parents should be handling those conversations with their kids? Well, before I say what parents should be handling, how about Dove jumps in here and says something about this? <laughs> well, I'll also say, by the way, in terms of, because I'm sure Batshev is going to, and what you've already implied is, you know, get to understand what your values are. You know, some people are very conflicted about their values because partly their values are very, might be very permissive, but they you know, grew up with being told how terrible it was and they had to deal with all of that baggage and that got internalized as well. And how do I, how, can I be honest with myself that I don't agree with all those messages that I got growing up? You know, so I think that some people, I think that there's a problem, A, in terms of halacha and B, in terms of people being very internally conflicted around some of these issues and around the normal type of shame that goes on with this. But I think that this is a really difficult issue because, you know, for teaching kids about, waiting till they get married, you know, and then they don't have the outlet of masturbation. I mean, besides, of course, you know, what I understand is, you know, the general understanding that just masturbation is a natural part of, you know, of sexual development and a healthy part of sexual development. It's not just an outlet, um, but it's how we sort of, you know, prepare ourselves for our sexual life. But even, for, you know, putting that aside, right? So if if you tell them to wait till marriage and you, then you tell them that they can't masturbate. So A, the message is that sex is dirty and bad. So that's obviously something that's going to take time to get over, over once they get married. And the other thing is like, how do we expect them to balance that? You know, they're obviously, they're young, they have these sexual urges and we're not giving them any outlet. Um, you know, and in the time of the Gemara, people would get married at the age of 15 or 17. So it would be an easier message, but that's certainly not the case right now. And kids were hitting puberty later. 
also. Is that true? At the uh, oh, I didn't realize that. Girls for sure were getting the period later. Girls for sure have started getting the period much earlier now. I don't know about boys, but I'm assuming it's the same because mm-hmm. of you know because yeah. we have better nutrition and better healthcare. So here's where I take the lucky break of being the sex therapist and not the halachic authority here. I mean, girls and boys masturbate, but boys for sure masturbate and um, telling them not to, it can be super detrimental, right? So having a conversation, I think, again, about the fact that boys masturbate, that the halacha says you shouldn't and and maybe that just means that there should be a certain limitation on it or how often you do it. Um, and maybe we need to address it like that or do it too often or do it constantly or where it's taking over your life or you're like living to masturbate. Um, but the reality is, is that boys do masturbate. You should not feel guilty for masturbating. And um, it's a normal, healthy thing. And I'm backing out now and saying for those parents who want to tell their kid not to masturbate, I just want to tell you that we see in our center the result of men who get married who have held back from ejaculating for 23 years and now can't ejaculate. And that becomes like neurological almost. And it's very complicated to solve that. So there can be like really long-term ramifications for that. Now, again, that doesn't mean that somebody has to be masturbating every day, right? And it doesn't mean that, and you can say to the boys, like it is a halachic issue. So you may, may you want to limit it, you know, but I think all, all you're doing if you're telling a kid not to masturbate is possibly doing long-term damage, but more likely just inducing huge amounts of guilt every time that they do. And that's just a terrible thing. And that also, let me add in that when boys masturbate, and they try to do it kind of quickly and, you know, on the sly and like they, they need to do it like they're, they're petrified and they feel gay, shame and guilt. They do it in a very unhealthy way often that makes that they either do it very strongly or very harshly or on their stomach, all kinds of ways where it makes it harder for them to then integrate into regular intercourse. So um, you're not helping them. I don't, I don't know what to say. I, I do get that there are a lot of issues, but you're not helping them. And I just want to clarify one point, Bacheva, which is that you specifically were talking about boys because there is more of a halachic issue when it comes to boys masturbating as opposed to girls, where there is not really the same halachic problem of girls masturbating. And I just want to also add to that, you know, parents should also be taking the opportunity to speak to their girls about masturbating. And the message there could be a lot easier, right? Like, Halachically, this isn't really a problem for your sexual development. This is positive. And so we can give a more positive and like less conflictual. It's irony is that with the boys, people are worried about limiting the masturbation with girls. It's a matter of encouraging them to learn their body and what feels pleasurable so that they can then move on. Because a lot of girls don't masturbate because the messages they're getting about sex are so complicated. Yeah, I wanted to jump in. I mean, I think that's correct that, uh, you know, because the focus on masturbation really is about the wasting of semen, of seed. And so for girls, there's like no or almost no halachic issue. And if you talk about baggage, and I mean, Bacheva, I think you can back me up on this. Uh, Even with all of those negative messages about masturbation, my sense is that men go in as a general rule, not that people don't have baggage, but men go into marriage, you know, even Orthodox men that got all those messages with a healthier attitude towards sexuality than women. And maybe it has to do with the fact that women are always being told to cover up their body, something along those lines. Um, so my sense is, is that it's actually in the case of the girls, the, there's a lot of baggage that can be hopefully addressed by a positive attitude towards uh, towards masturbation. And it's much less of a halachic issue. So on a related note, um, I think another huge topic that comes up here is the issue of Shmirat Nagia, right? Like teaching our kids to be Shomer Nagia. Is that realistic? How do we go about that? Yeah, and I, I think it really points to, you know, the challenge of these issues um, for young people nowadays, like, you know, the fact that we have a separate label for being Shomer Nagia, and like, I know that the discussion in school is like, are you Shomer? Are you not Shomer? You know, people don't say that around other things. Are you Shomer Kashras? Are you Shomer Shabbos? Like, you know, it's understood, like, this is the one thing that's negotiable, or that different people have different practices of. So I think that that really points to, you know, how hard this is in our current realities, and again, which, you know, wasn't really the case when people were getting married young, which was the case in the time of the Gemara. Um, and I think that to me, what's really important is 
to appreciate that halacha recognizes gradations and to communicate these gradations. You know, there's a difference between intercourse and then there's a difference between, you know, uh, sex, which is non-intercourse, but still, you know, forms of sex or sexual activity. And then there's, you know, and then there's uh, nigia, which could be, you know, non-sexual or sexual. There's all of these halakhic gradations. And when we tell everybody it's all usser, then, uh, you know, it's all forbidden. Then I think often we're both not training our kids to sort of check in for themselves where they want to draw their lines. And if it's all about halach and I'm going to sort of not keep this problem of nagi of sexual touch, pretty much means everything is the same. So I might as well not do A, B, and C either. So I, I think that one of our real responsibilities here is really to educate around the halachic issues about this, about then the various gradations. Well, I love, love, love that because I do feel like there's a sort of sense with this Shomer Nagia, and I always laugh because people are only Shomer Nagia while they're really not dating anybody, but okay. <laughs> uh, are you Shomer Nagia? Absolutely. But then, you know, I laugh. But um, but the truth is that the idea that holding hands or putting arms around each other or kissing each other is then in the same category as oral sex, which is in the same category as intercourse, just feels like it's such an oversimplified version of how kids can approach these relationships. And I think they can approach them in a much more adult way if we teach them about it in a much more adult way. Totally. My my one comment on this topic is there's a book called The Magic Touch. And I think it is the worst book to <laughs> give your kids on this topic. I'm sorry if this is like watching her. No, no, no. Um, that book is super damaging, right? Because it posits that anybody who has any kind of physical relationship prior to marriage will have a less fulfilling marriage. And I cannot tell you the number of clients who have come in who were like in rehab from that book. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. Or like, like I, if I recall, it also sort of like gives the message that if you're not Shomer Nagia, you're like, like psychologically and emotionally like damaged goods in some way that like, it's going to take away from your like psychological capacity to have a good relationship. That's exactly, exactly her so, message. So terrible. Yeah. Right, I, especially I, because that other study was done, which was that they had a hard time getting published because it suggested that women who had sex in previous relationships, the ones, the religious women who are married now, had better sex lives. So that was what the data showed. And the, the irony of that is should not be lost on anyone. Hmm. That does not say I'm going out to everybody to have sex before you're married. <laughs> okay. I just want to be clear. Right. I don't want to be misquoted on that. And, and the final point I want to make about the Nagia issue is for those that are sort of aware of some of the halachic discourse, often what gets gets thrown around is, well, according to Rambam, you know, all forms of sexual touch are biblically forbidden. So, you know, and that just adds this weight and then everything gets to be horrific. And actually, it's not true, even for Rambam who says that there are types of sexual touch that are biblically forbidden. That's only when it's like very close to intercourse. You know, so much, there's a whole major range of sexual touch that is uh, that is not in the biblical category for Rambam. Um, and people should be aware of that again, because A, it's a misunderstanding, and B, it's this attitude, like if we take a very absolute dogmatic position, we'll scare everyone away, and usually it can be very counterproductive. You know, I want to say to parents, a really, really important thing is to think about how you're going to respond when a problem arises, because problems do arise. And again, you want your kid to come to you and how you respond to your child is going to be critically important. So I'm laughing because I'm thinking this story I have never told because I sort of feel like I'm really invading his privacy, but he has children right now and I can't imagine he cares. But our oldest son, when he was, uh, my message to them about pornography was always, and this was like in the very early days of the internet, was like, I know it's out there. I don't really think you should be watching it. After you're 18, you can watch whatever you want to watch. But for right now, I don't think you should be watching it. That is was my message. Anyway, when he was about 16 or so, our oldest son, who's like a little sadic, um, under the header of parents who think their kids don't know anything, we had all these viruses on our computer. It was our home computer, and we couldn't figure out what was going on. And we were like trying to figure it out where could they have come from, and we were like agonizing. And late at night, one night, he comes in, a little tiny bashful. He's like, he looks like he's about to cry. And he says, you know, I think it might be my fault because I was like looking at pornography you know, after you go to sleep at night. Like we all had one computer, it was like 25 years ago. And I remember at the moment, I almost burst out laughing. Like that was really right. But I, you know, there was a part of me that was like a little bit like horrified, right? Here's my little, my little goody goody two shoes son who's 16 years old, who's accessing pornography, which was not as accessible in those days. I just smiled and I said, okay, you know, 
they do, kids do that. Kids, please, if you don't mind, we're going to get the computer cleaned up, but please don't do that because it really gets viruses on our computer and that's a bad <laughs> thing, you know? So, um, and I, I just, I could almost see the like relief draining from him. The fact that he could mm. talk about it, he wasn't getting blasted and he wasn't getting yelled at and he wasn't getting shamed, you know? And I, I feel like, we have no idea what our kids are carrying around. And, you know, if your child comes home and somebody's gotten pregnant, which is not so crazy, or somebody's picked up an STD of some sort, like, that is not so nuts. Or they think they may be pregnant because they did something that wasn't even making them pregnant, possible to make them pregnant, but their misinformation, you know, kids get these crazy imaginations. The fact that they can talk to you and, and trust you, like, that will go so much further than any other values conversation that you may want to have with them. And, and I want to add that, um, you know, that a recurring theme here is, is that harsher approach is counterproductive. Um, and, you know, even to the ends you're trying to achieve, a uh, point that you made before in terms of, you know, if you're absolute about things, you're actually shutting them down. And here, if you're very harsh around these issues of pornography and masturbation, you create an obsession with them and you probably just increase the behavior and increase the shame that's associated with it. So uh, I think for parents that are concerned about giving a softer message, it's important to consider, you know, not just like what's the outcome of the message you're going to give um, and whether, you know, because harsh message here could actually lead to more of this activity and more obsessive and more shameful. So I guess the, uh, the other thing I just want to close with is I want parents who are listening to sort of relax, like something, and you've heard me say this before, we are obsessed as an Orthodox community about what our kids are doing between the ages of 14 and 23. Like, we're just, we're worried about it. We're scared about it. We, we talk about it with our friends. Like we're just, and I promise you, I promise you that this is just one stage in your kid's life. And they will probably most likely like 99.9% grow up to be responsible adults who are in long-term monogamous relationships of some sort. We hope, but in most cases, that's the case. Even if they do have sex when they're in college, even if they're fooling around having oral sex younger than you think that they should be, even if they're, you know, talking to their friends about sex, this is just one stage. And try really hard to take a deep breath and, and realize that they will grow up and they will grow up probably to be lovely, upstanding members of the sexual community. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And the halacha community, I will add. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so both the last podcast that we did on the preteens and this podcast, I did not go into any specific areas that have to be covered or specific books that I think kids should have. Um, and I think that there's so many resources for that. These were much more like meta conversations about sort of Jewish values and how to approach these things. There are great resources out there. I said the Roby Harris books are out there, the Scarlet Teen website um, for teens. Um, if you go to Dr. Bacheva on Instagram, I have lists of books for you. Our Bodies, Our Cells website for parents and for teenagers have listings. There are so many great resources out there about topics to cover. So I highly recommend you do that because I didn't use these two sessions to go through very specific forms of, in, you know, forms of birth control you should cover and topics you should cover, but those are really widely available. So I highly encourage you to look at those things up. Coming up, our conversation with Instagrammer Holy Shid, including a big identity reveal. But first, a word from our sponsors. With over 125 musmachim in the field, Yeshivat Chovavei Torah is committed to training a new generation of modern Orthodox rabbis. Jason, you're a rabbi in training. What's your perspective? It was precisely the musmachim of Yeshivat Chovavei Torah that drew me to the yeshiva. The tremendous diversity of work that they're engaged in and the underlying love of and commitment to the Jewish people really inspires me. Thanks, Jason. If you'd like to apply or schedule a visit, go to yctorah.org. Today, we are so excited to be joined by the up until now anonymous Instagrammer behind the account Holy Shid which goes about matchmaking in a new and fresh way. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to be here. So here's the deal. You're anonymous. This is the first time anybody's hearing your voice, right? That's right. 
Right. Until now, people haven't known if you're a man or a woman. So people are probably guessing that you're a woman at this point. I hope so. I hope that the voice is a giveaway. Yeah, right. Exactly. So why don't we just talk to you for a while and then maybe somewhere along the way, you'll actually tell us all who you are. Sounds great. Okay, great. So uh, I guess to start off, for those who are not familiar with your Instagram account, can you tell us a little bit about what Holy Shit is, what you do? Sure. So Holy Shit has been a bit of an evolution. It actually started as a bit of a joke um, with me and my four sisters. We wanted to try to get my youngest sister married and the shidduch system was just not working. And we were all on vacation in Miami, probably drinking gin and tonics around the pool. <laughs> and we're like, you know what? Like Instagram, like, like, Instagram profiles are the new shidduch resumes. When somebody hears a name right away, they go to Instagram, they type it in, they try to get a feel of who the person is. We're like, what if we can get people on Instagram to be able to connect with each other without a middle person? And we sort of all came up with this concept, a very raw concept called Holy Shid, where people would submit anonymous bios, small blurbs about themselves that we'd put up on stories. And if somebody was interested in it or thought of somebody that might be a good match, I would send the other person's Instagram handle and say match at whoever. Wait, I need to I need to digress for a second because what's striking me in this whole story, which nobody comments on, is your mother was a part of this conversation where you were naming it holy shit. Totally. That's, that's kind totally. of fascinating. <laughs> Just saying. Totally. Your mother must be pretty cool. She is pretty cool. She's sort of like the um the Kardashian mom. What's her name again? You're asking the wrong crowd. <laughs> She's the Chris yeah. Jenner of because we're oh, four yeah. girls. <laughs> So like okay. when we're in Miami together and we call to make reservations, like at restaurants, we make it under Kris Jenner. And then like my mom walks in with the four girls and we all laugh. It's really fun. So yeah, she's definitely part of the party. And my sister was looking to get married and she did get married to a shit. <laughs> wow. Wow. Can you tell us what it said? What did her Instagram account, like what was the thing you posted about her? Oh, I'd have to look it up, but it was probably like 22 year old. Um, in school for interior design, loves, you know, nights in the city and long walks on the boardwalk, looking to meet, I don't know, what, Mr. Perfect, hit me up. (laughs) This is hilarious. It is hilarious. Someone messaged me like, hey, match me. And I'm like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Like, tell me a bit about yourself. They're like, that's not how shit works. Like, I never ask questions. Like, somebody wants to be matched, they get matched. I'm not God. I don't decide if. So because I was asking a lot of questions, he's like, why are you asking so many questions? I'm like, it's a really good friend of mine. (laughs) So he's like, okay, I didn't say it was my sister yet. Um, So he got through some of the uh, guards over there. And they got married a year ago. Wow. Wow. Yeah, so that was the first. Yeah, you have a few others, right? I have one other marriage. Um, I didn't even know they were dating. I matched this guy. He says, I'm never getting married. I'm a U.S. Army general. Chabad background, but I'm not, you know, Jewish. I'm not sure how religious. And he's like, I'm never getting married. I need an army wife. I need somebody that is going to pick up and move when I get reassigned. I'm never getting married. I'm like, try me. I put up his (laughs) bio. Six different girls matched with him. I sent him every single one. I hadn't heard from him in months. Next thing I hear from him, I'm picking out a ring. (laughs) Wow. Who doesn't want to go out with a Chabad general? I'm telling you. (laughs) Totally. They're married with a baby and I call it baby shit and we sing like baby shark to baby shit, you know. (laughs) Very cute. You're very irreverent. You're... Instagram account is just really wild. Like, I often feel like I'm way too old to follow that account. I don't get half your references. She uses great music. <laughs> like, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so that's a little bit of the evolution of it is, okay, in real life, I'm a psychotherapist. I've been in practice 10 years, so it's giving you a bit of like an age reference right there. And um, I think that what happened was in in putting up people's bios and matching people, it became very clear that... My belief is that God makes matches. And my belief is that we need to get out of our own way so that God could send us the match and that we can accept the match. And there's so many things about us and our insecurities and our fantasies, our dreams, our our programming, our societal pressures that get in the way of us being able to 
organically receive God's match. And I think that's where my psychotherapy edge comes in, where people will say things and I'll put that up. I'll screenshot the DM where somebody says, nah, that girl won't work. I need someone I could take home to my mom. Hmm. And I'll put that up and I'll be like, shits, what do you think? And then we get into a whole conversation about can, can you please your mom and yourself with the same girl? Is that going to happen? What if you can't? Like, and I sort of, it's psychotherapy, but it's not psychotherapy. Because like you said, it's sharp. It's, it's out there. It's things that I just, I let the shids tumble about it and give their opinions and their insights. I let, and then I put those up. So it's sort of like stories as a full conversation. And then usually towards the end, I'll put what I think. And it's coming from my psychological professional background, but it's also very non-psychoanalytic at the same time where I really, I think I have found a way to say true things in a way that people can hear them. Say something more about that. It's that you think that God arranges it. Does that mean you believe in the idea of a bashert? I mean, how is this different than God directing other aspects of our lives and we have to get out of the way maybe to let that happen? So it might be a little fantastical. It's not very like deep for me. I think it's just this this nice idea that before you're born, God says <laughs> the name of your soulmate. Now, again, mm-hmm. this has been a discussion on shit. Do we marry our soulmate? Is our best life lived with that soulmate that was called out? Do we have more than one soulmate? What happens if you don't end up with that person that God put out there? It's open for debate. What do you say about that? I should be asking you that question. (laughs) This, uh, some other time I'll share my thoughts, but I I, I am curious about, are you a romantic at heart in the sense of, you know, sometimes people are a little bit more pragmatic when they're thinking about it. Is the first marriage, the second marriage, uh, you know, sort of, does any of that, I'm wondering how much that sort of theological perspective sort of guides you in any way. Yeah, well, like I said, it guides me a lot because I believe in the way that God created their soul, that there's two parts, one and one, half and half, however people want to describe that. So so how come I can't find mine? Where is he? Where is she? I dated 50 guys. None of them were them. Maybe one of them was. And then you always hear these stories, how somebody went to their Rosh Hashiva and said, where's my Bashar? And he said, you missed her. She already uh-huh. came. She already left. What is that? I don't know what that is, but the romantic part of me and maybe the spiritual part of me, because holy shit also gets spiritual, but I think you could attest to that, believes that there's somebody for everyone. And I mm-hmm. and the psychologist in me believes that we can block that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We can block ourselves from being able to receive that person in our life. One of the things I see a lot going through, and it just could be what I'm hitting, but is the the people who are really sort of stuck on playing the field, you know, getting in touch with old flames, you know, getting to people they know aren't going to work out. Um, and you often let that play itself out quite a bit. It's sort of interesting to watch that. Maybe you want to talk to that for a second. <laughs> yeah. And here's why. I think there's two teams on the getting in touch with the ex situation. There's the people that were in toxic situations or in relationships that weren't going to work out. So now they're not together and they have an ex. That's one. The other one is people that said no for not a good enough reason or regret it or think that they should have given it more time or realize that the reason why they said no maybe really isn't that important to make a good relationship work or they dated other people since and realized, you know what, I really had something with that person. So I think Corona was a really good, hey, you stop. You're not really dating so much, you know, new prospects for real because there's not a lot of opportunity. Think about all the people you went out with and yeah, think about your exes. Think about if you had said no to somebody that maybe could have been a good idea for you and why you said no. And can it still work? I'm sure there's many people out there that ended up marrying an ex. Right. So one thing that's really striking me in all of this um, is that unlike most dating platforms, you don't show any pictures, right? Like the only, you know, caption about the person is just like their own, like, you know, verbal 
description of themselves and that's it. How do you think that that plays out um, in terms of the like success of your platform? So obviously that's by design. First of all, I think people are very hesitant to put a picture of themselves out there for strangers to see and sort of, you know, look at and have and screenshot. They just, it, you know, people just don't feel comfortable with that. But here, here's the thing. It's amazing how you could, I could put up a great sounding bio, let's say of a girl, 10 guys message me, match, 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 right? And then they'll see the Instagram profile and like not be so into the look. Mm -hmm. So I feel like that's a teachable moment that two things. First of all, like maybe giving people a shot that's not exactly your look because you seem to be very drawn into their personality in their little blurb. That's one. Number two, I'm a huge advocate, and Dr. Bacheva, you can back me up here, huge advocate that attraction is number one. There's no overruling attraction. Like, I get this all the time. He's a really nice guy. I just can't get over his looks. What should I do? And I write back, move on. And everyone goes crazy, you know, because it's like, oh, it could grow. Who knows? Time. Attraction can grow. But if attraction is not there, you cannot marry the person. And I say this like over and over and over and over. And I, I believe that attraction has nothing to do with the person's picture. I don't think that you can know if you're going to be attracted to someone based on the, their picture. I think you need to meet them. I think you need to spend time with them. And then, you know, am I growing an attraction towards this person? Am I having feelings towards this person? Is my body responding in a way that I know I'm excited to spend time with this person or not? And if the answer is not, not for you. And if you can't feel that way towards anyone, which also came up, I've never felt that way to anyone I've ever met. Mm. You might want to visit me in my office. <laughs> like that's sort of the piece of holy shit where I'm like, maybe we need to talk things out. Like that seems a little bit more extensive than what we can do on shit. Do you think that there's maybe though, I mean, some, some people would critique it, not saying that attraction isn't important, but saying that we're too caught up with looks. We have too much of a, you know, of a perfect sense that everybody has to be gorgeous or, you know, a, 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 an unrealistic sense of what, of, of how somebody but has to That's not look. what she's saying. I know. I'm asking, I know you, I know it's not what she's saying, but I'm asking if you ever feel that that's the problem, that it's not just a question of attractiveness. Attraction to me has nothing to do with looks. Mm hmm I have a guy write a bio. He's like, nice girl, good needles, serious about a, a um, career, and blue eyes. <laughs> right. So that's called blocking what God's sending you. Because what if God sent you everything you wanted but with brown eyes? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I don't believe that looks has to do with attraction. I think somebody could be gorgeous. That's nice. They have, they're beautiful. But I also think that we could be so attracted to people that we would never – have ever thought we could be attracted to. So case in point, when I was single, I dated 50 guys. I thought I was never getting married ever. Uh, but when anyone asked me what I'm looking for, I said a football player. <laughs> I want a big guy. I want, I want a football player. Is there anything wrong with that? That's what I'm attracted to. And my husband's the same height as me. We're, five, we're both 5'6". Huh. So yeah, so I was looking for a look maybe. Or I think it was a feeling. I think I wanted to feel small and safe next to some big person, right? So I was looking for a look or a feeling. And I found attraction in somebody that didn't fit that fantasy criteria. So I like to sort of spread that message that you cannot tell by somebody's picture or by their height and weight and size and whatever if you're going to feel attracted to them. You really need to meet the person, be with their energy, and... And then you'll know, like, if your body is responding to them in a way that lets you know you're attracted. So so this whole approach to dating feels um, maybe not so revolutionary for the more, like, modern Orthodox community, but very revolutionary for the more, like, yeshivish community. Have you gotten any pushback or anyone, say, like, saying that they're not okay with what you're doing on, on this platform? 
you know, I have people say nasty things and then unfollow, but like that means that you you've made it in the world, right? You got to have your haters. Absolutely. But um the yeshivish ones mostly like when I call them stalker accounts a little bit. When you go to their when you click on their Instagram page, they have like zero posts. And they follow like 7,000 people. And you're like, I really wanted to like get a feel of you. You know, because I really do believe that Instagram accounts can serve as a much better resume than a page full of words. People choose what to put on their Instagram. People choose what they want you to know. It's curated. So what do you want me to know about you says a lot. Is it is it nature? Is it is it couture clothing? Like what's on your, what, what's on your Instagram? So I find that the more yeshivish ones, they're so interested. They're so looking for something different to work for them. But they don't completely come out and embrace it as openly as maybe the more modern Orthodox. But I have, well, I have, I have a huge Hasidish presence. I love my Hasidim. I'm always writing. I love my Hasidim. I have a yeshivish presence and I have a modern Orthodox presence and I have a non-religious presence. It's amazing. Why don't you introduce yourself for who you really are? And then we can just, I can talk freely after that. Yeah. Okay. Sure. My name is Ahuva Shandelman. I live in Muncie, New York. I have a private practice. I'm a psychotherapist. I am married. And I'm also a mom of three boys. Which I have to say, her oldest son has his own Instagram account now. Zevi the Nature Man. And he and he like shows you turtles and geese. It's so cute. Okay, anyway. Just- and and Bacheva, you know you love him because he talks about the mating practices of all the animals. <sighs> I haven't uh-huh. noticed that yet, but I will look. I'll look, look carefully now. Um, so anyway, so Ahuva has her own account as a Ahuva. But this one is just so wild and out there. And I wonder how, how are you going to merge those two? Like, how are you going to meld that, those realities of your life now? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not really sure. You know, um, I think that shit has been so warmly embraced. Um, and I feel like me and my real life is warmly embraced. So if this is just going to be another dimension of me. It is a little bit of a, like an alter ego a little bit. Like, I don't know that I'm full on shit in my real life. <laughs> but I definitely have used the shit universe, the shit universe to to let a certain part of me go, you know, like loose. And to not have to, you know, package everything in a psychologically appropriate way and make sure everybody's comfortable with the words that I'm using. Like shit is where you're going to get what I really think. And I think people like that. You know, they might have a problem with how you said it, but they're still happy that you just went out and just said said what you think. So do you think that now that you've shared your secret identity, you might be a little more hesitant to just put it all out there? Maybe. We will see. But I, I, think, it, I think it's a step that needed to be taken because shit only takes people so far. And I think mm-hmm. that I have been able to welcome some shits into my therapy room over time. It's interesting how that all happened. But I think I would like to open up my session room to people that when I talk to them on shit, it ends up in a place where, wow, you really need to work through that because you have a great life ahead of you. So I feel like two years into shit, I've given a lot of myself and I think I want to give more of myself and I think that could only happen in bringing in the fact that I am, you know, a real person and that I'm a psychotherapist and that we could, we could go further. We can go further than where we've gone. So interesting. Do you have any like perspective on things that might be, I mean, you, you shared before about how we have to get out of our own way, but you have, but you know, sometimes people will say that there are aspects of the larger society, which is, uh, you know, not letting us get married or, you know, we're too busy playing the field, you know, young people and so on. Like, do you have, from where you stand, like what either perspective or advice would you have about the whole, you know, shidduch reality in terms of how things could be better? I really think the shidduch system works for many, many, many people. Mm -hmm. It does. And I think that's amazing. And I think that if it's working, it should keep working. I think that the people that are attracted to what shit has to say are the people that it's not really working for. Mm-hmm. So I think that you can't fight the system. I think it's a great system. I, I really think it works 90% of the time. I think if people, 
people come from, let's say, schools where shidduch system is like the next step in their, you know, in their life, probably 90% of their class got married through the shidduch system within three to five years of out of high school. So who's left? I think that's who shid talks to. Mm-hmm. I think actually I said shidduch, but in my mind, I was thinking actually more like the dating scene. You know, without 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 Shadchanin, right? So, do you have a sense of like what about that could be better? Are people too much enjoying the dating experience and not serious about trying to find someone? Is it is everything like you know? I actually know that there's still the even with young modern people, there's still the whole issue about uh, if a woman's really interested in a guy, does she feel comfortable asking the guy out? You know, it's like like there. I'm just curious, like from where you stand, like what's your take on the dating scene? So here's here's some of my take. Some of my take goes like this. First of all, I don't think there's a rush to get married. I think that people that are not sure if they want to get married or are having fun dating should just do what they want for however long you want. You have the rest of your life to be married and you only have now to be single. So hmm. I feel like live it up. Do what you need to do. Don't mislead somebody that you're in a relationship Mm. with that you know that you're serious you could say i'm not really i'm interested in building a relationship with you but i'm not really looking to settle down and be single for as long as you'd like because i think that in also in working with married people in my practice i have people that got married at 18 and 19 and now they're 26 and they're like they've missed something and they're trying to figure that out but now they have kids and a husband and it's 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 a much more complicated scenario to try to reconquer something that you may have skipped over. So I I don't think there's a rush to get married. I really don't. Um, I think people should stay single if it's making them happy. I think the pressure is crazy. Obviously, in the shidduch world, we feel like there's more girls and guys. I don't really know what's going on with that because there has to be a guy for every girl. I don't know. But I think people should stay single. And I think that when you do decide you want to get married, you should get married find somebody that works for you. And I think I, I think I read in um, Abraham Torsky, he's on his second marriage, but he has a book called The First Year of Marriage. And he writes something about how in the, the first time looking for a wife, no, I think a woman was telling him this. The, the first time she was looking for a husband, she like thought of all the things she wanted in a spouse. When she found it, she married him. The second time she was looking for a husband, she, she looked at all the guys, saw all the things she couldn't stand about them. And when she found one she could tolerate, she married him. <laughs> you know, if you told that from the man's perspective, it would be so sexist and unacceptable. I just want to say that. <laughs> Maybe that's why he wrote it from a woman's perspective. Who knows who really told the story? We'd have to get him on here and ask him. But, but you know, we're all like, you know, it's so nice, the fantasy of marriage. The truth is you look for all the things that you want in a marriage, but you really also have to understand that. No one's going to be perfect. So can you, can you, do you feel like you can live a good life with this person? And this is what I think is happening also in 2020. It used to be people got married and it was like a culmination of a certain time period. You're single, then you get married and it's like you've made it in the world in some way. Nowadays, I think people get married as another step in their self-fulfillment. They're looking for someone to live a better life with. And I think that, like, it's not going to just be enough. What used to be enough is no longer enough for people. And I think it just is taking people longer to figure out. And and the people that don't know what they really want, how are they going to find somebody? They don't even know who they are. And I'm a big advocate for, like, being married to yourself a little bit. Dating yourself. Getting to know yourself. What do you like? What drives you crazy? What is intimacy for you? What is your love language? Because how could you expect to find something in somebody else when you don't even know how to give it to yourself? So, I don't know. I guess I have a lot of scattered ideas, but they all come together and shit. You know, maybe one day I'll write the book and I'll be a bit more organized. This is great. Unfortunately, we have to stop, but um, this was great. And we are so honored that you decided to do the big reveal about Holy Shit on our podcast. So, this is very exciting. Ahuba Shandleman, Holy Shit. And um, you should follow her on Instagram. It's holy underscore shit. Holy Two Ooh, underscores. Okay. Shit. <laughs> Did somebody already have the one underscore taken? I don't think so. I think <laughs> I just really wanted to like separate the two words and maybe it's like <laughs> the two halves of a whole. I don't know. There's some symbolism there. <laughs> 
So follow Ahuva on holy two underscores shid. Thank you so, so much for coming on, Ahuva. Thank you for having me. This is like a dream come true. Next up, the final word after this quick word from our sponsor. Hi, my name is Rabbi Eliezer Lawrence, and I'm a certified Mohel serving the New York metropolitan area. I work with Jewish families and conversion candidates of all identities, affiliations, and orientations, both within the Orthodox community and beyond. With the sense of uncertainty that we face during this pandemic, you need to feel certain that your baby is in safe hands. My practice is built on ethos of the highest standard of safety and sterility, as well as a deep spirituality for both family and guests. I am proud to have been a key advocate in working with community leadership to ensure clear safety guidelines for Brit Mila during the coronavirus. For more information about me or my practice, you can visit my website, familymohel.com, or give me a call at 201-694-1801. In the meantime, enjoy the podcast, stay safe, and b'sha'at tova. So the final word for this week, on your recent episode, Sexuality Throughout the Lifespan, I was a bit disappointed that you gave such broad generalizations about women during menopause without going into more detail about other possibilities for women's sex lives during that time. I'm a 52-year-old woman and have been having the best sex of my life ever since I hit 50. I had been scared off by the general mythos of women becoming dry and uninterested in sex during perimenopause until I found a podcast called Vivid that put menopause in a totally different light outside of the usual mythology surrounding it. Since I've started to discover this and mention it to other women, they have also started to quote unquote come out about how they too are experiencing amazing out of this world sex midlife. To top things off, without going into a lot of detail, my 88-year-old mother alluded to the fact that she was also having incredible sex with her 90-year-old lover, finally getting together after years of being in the same Torah study group. So please don't just buy into the prevailing discourse and actually be open to other visions of life for postmenopausal women and share these possibilities with your audience. So I, I have to say, first of all, go you. I am so happy that you have found a fabulous sex life and that your mom also has a great sex life. Nothing could make me happier. And I'm amused a little bit because my whole message has been a lot of people have challenges, but you should get past the challenges. There's a way to fix everything so you can have a fabulous sex life. So if you had heard me, and I, I can't imagine, you guys are listening to these podcasts, Sarah and Dove, like... Do you feel like I'm saying you're going to hit menopause, life's going to be terrible, you're never going to have sex again? No, definitely not. Yeah, I feel like the message I've heard at least is like there could be some like hormonal challenges that come up, but here are ways to work through them. And that is the message. And I do have to say that with all due respect to the fact that the this writer seemed to have sailed through menopause without any of the physiological changes that occur in most women, we're talking most, we're talking like 95%. Most people have physiological changes, hormone, I mean, all women have hormonal drops. And for most women, their vaginas really are affected by it. If you're not, that's great. You're not going to be needing help. So then you're going to be happy and wonderful. But for many, many women, physiological changes are such that they need to have some kind of intervention. And intervention's fine. And it's great. And so just should anybody understand, my message always is, is yes, there are road bumps all along the way. Not just when you're menopausal, when you're pregnant, you know, sometimes post-pregnancy, when you have a little kid, different road bumps, but all road bumps are fixable. So yes, keep going, your mom. <laughs> Thank you so much to our guest, Ahuva Shandelman, Instagrammer behind the account, holy shit. This episode of The Joy of Text was produced and edited by Max Hollander and is a project of the Lindenbaum Center at YCT. If you have any questions or comments you'd like to share with us, you can do so anonymously at www.thejoyoftext.org. The Joy of Text is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any podcast app. If you like what you hear, show us your support by giving us a five-star rating and stay up to date with our latest episodes and live events by following us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram.